Welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy God, we love you. Heavenly Father, we worship you and praise you. I thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing in this week to draw our attention to the gift of redemption, won by your Son at the cost of his blood. I pray, Father, in that holy name, the name of Jesus, who has overcome death, that your spirit would be at work in this program and in the hearts and minds of all of those who hear my voice. Lord our God, we do love you and we want to love you more. We long to be faithful to you in all things. Lord, give us grace, give us mercy. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you today. As I mentioned, I'm going to be reading from the Summa Theologica a little bit later in the program. I'm going to be covering uh, question number 55 of the third part of the Summa Theologica. Yes, I'm sure you're all wondering what that is about. It is about the body of Christ risen from the dead. Christ's risen body, you've probably heard it said that the only man-made thing in heaven, the only man-made thing in heaven is what? The wounds on the body of the risen Lord. And you wonder why would Jesus, uh, rising from the dead in his resurrection, continue to display these five wounds? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas has five answers. And we're going to explore those five answers. And, and they're going to actually beautifully lead us into Lent. They're going to lead us into Holy Week as points of reflection, as points of, uh, hopefully, conversion. conversion. Uh, so there's some powerful, profound stuff that we're going to learn from St. Thomas Aquinas today. I do want to continue to share with you, though, the, the journey of Lent. It's Holy Week. It, it's still Lent. And so even if you have had a lousy first week of Lent, second week, third week, fourth week, fifth week of Lent, and wait a minute now, how much longer is it going to go on? Here we are. You still have time. You still have time. It's only Tuesday. You can have a great day today and tomorrow. And then into the Triduum, the three days, beginning with Holy Thursday in the evening, and then continuing on Friday, and uh, and then whatever you do uh, to celebrate Easter, whether you go to the Easter Vigil or on Sunday morning. Um, This is one of those things where you'll probably want to be intentional. I encourage you to be intentional, to be planful about this. Don't be caught off guard regarding the times of masses, uh, regarding the times of the Good Friday service, as well as the Uh, Stations of the Cross, those are two separate things that will be typically happening in your parish uh, on Good Friday. And then be thoughtful about, um, do you want to go to the Easter Vigil? Or do you want to go to Easter morning Mass? Uh, And and think about when. When is it going to best serve you? I don't actually know where Carrie and I uh, came up with the thought. I think it was probably that both of our families um, had a natural, just sort of custom in our homes to go to the Triduum. So I just remember growing up, 
it's just what we did. We, on Holy Thursday, went to Mass on Holy Thursday evening, the Mass of the Lord's Supper. It's where they do the washing of the feet. And then on Good Friday, I just remember, as, as a youngster, we had Stations of the Cross, and we also had the commemoration uh, of the Lord's Passion, that Good Friday uh, it wasn't Mass, right? It was Good Friday where you kiss the cross, right? That's what everybody remembers. They kiss the cross, or Chris, kiss the crucifix, and, um, and, and then receive Holy Communion. Uh, and then on, um, uh, on, on Easter, it would be uh, something that we decided to do. We'd go to the vigil, uh, go to the Easter vigil on Saturday in the evening because it was the it was the longest mass. It was like the fullest mass. It was the one that had all the readings, right? <laughs> and it had baptisms and confirmations. And it was the full meal deal. So if it isn't something that you've done as a family before, I really encourage you to uh, check out the Triduum. Check out the Triduum as a powerful, beautiful way to foster a Catholic atmosphere in your home, a Catholic uh, way of looking at life in your kids. One of the things that we did uh, and and still do is we try to design the Triduum in a way that allows our kids to get a sense of um, a, a little bit of um, excitement over, uh, the word novelty isn't quite it, but the sense of we're, we're, we're going to a distinct event. So I know for many of you, uh, the best way for you to do the Triduum will be to uh, attend those services at your parish. And that's definitely, I highly recommend that for sure. Um, but for us, one of the things that we've done is we've found it uh, to be a, a special blessing for our family to be able to say, oh, on Holy Thursday, we're going to go to the cathedral. And then on Good Friday, we're going to go to uh, our own parish, right, at at St. Joan of Arc. Um, but then for the vigil, maybe we'll go to St. Thomas in Coeur d'Alene. Um, so there are a number of uh, parishes where we'll do that because a few things happens. Number one, we get to see a wider um, uh, swath of the Catholic community in our area. The second is you get a sense of the, the difference in the um, liturgical um, style is not the right word, but you, you can see the beautiful way that the parishes prepare for these amazing liturgies. And, um, and, it, and it gives a sense of um, excitement, anticipation. Uh, well, I'll say at least anticipation. I don't know how excited my kids always are, but at least in a sense of anticipation that, oh, wow, what, what's going to happen here? This is going to be um, this is going to be something maybe different. So uh, the, the negotiation has already begun. <laughs> we went to our, uh, our Palm Sunday Mass. Uh, we went to the High Mass at St. Joan of Arc, and it was gorgeous. It was just holy and beautiful. And it was uh, three hours long, the Palm Sunday Mass, uh, the liturgy. It was, it was very sacred. It was a very holy thing. And it was, it was a great gift. I felt like it was a great gift. My kids struggled with it a little bit more, three hours, but it was a, it was a lovely liturgy. And so we're now uh, navigating through the rest of Holy Week. How are we doing this different? What are we doing differently during Holy Week? So 
Uh, on Monday night, that's tonight when I'm recording this, we had our kids watch a talk about the Blessed Mother given by Father Calloway. Uh, Father Calloway, um, you've heard us talk about him from the consecration to St. Joseph. Well, he has done so much writing and uh, fostering of a devotion to the Blessed Mother and to her apparitions and to, to the praying of the rosary. He gave a talk at one of those national focus conferences and it was pretty entertaining, and it was aimed at a younger audience. And we said, kids, sit down. This is going to take the place of catechism class this week. You are going to enjoy, uh, you're going to enjoy this presentation about the Blessed Mother, the masterpiece of, uh, of God. So, um, so that was something that just made the kids realize that this week isn't an ordinary week. This is Holy Week, kids. And so... This is who we are as a family, and this is just what we do. So I do encourage you to see if there are ways for you to incorporate something new and different in your own family during this Holy Week. And, and by doing that, what are we doing? We're helping, to our kid, we're helping our kids get a sense of their own identity is rooted in, is found or discovered in, and is nourished by their life of faith. Their first relationship, first from the standpoint of most fundamental, and first from the standpoint of it ought to be the first priority, is their relationship with God. God has created our children and ourselves. Not only have we been created by God, but we have been created for God. We've been created for a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have been created for union with God. And so when we live our lives on earth, day to day, in such a way that that relationship is attended to, that relationship is acknowledged, that relationship is fostered, that relationship is determinative of how it is we're going to spend our time and effort and energy, our focus and our attention, that we'll never forget that our first and most fundamental, our priority relationship is our relationship with our Heavenly Father, uh, that we can come to cry out and know as Abba Father because of Jesus, in whom we live and move and have our being because of the gift of the Spirit who dwells within our hearts. So we live in this Trinitarian flow of life, but we can. It's not just theology. It's not just words. It's not just nice ideas or poetry. It's the deepest reality and the highest reality of our lives. But in order to let what ought to be the deepest and highest and greatest prior, prime, uh, priority reality, we have to take action to be able to get there. And so there are some weeks where, guess what? That's just easier. Holy Week is one of those weeks. It's just easier. So even my kids were grumbling a bit about, uh, hey, there was going to be a birthday party on Thursday night, or hey, maybe there was going to be an event on Friday night. And I just looked at my son and I said, let's talk about what those days are again. <laughs> and, and he just smiled because he knew he was caught, right? They, there's no getting around it. There's no getting away from it. There's no avoiding it. No, this is what is real. We, Currens, are Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus, and on, uh, on Holy Thursday, we go to Mass. We go to Mass, and we enter into the Triduum. 
Remember the washing of the feet? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, Dad. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I said, can you remember a Holy Thursday without ever, uh, with, where you ever didn't go to Mass and just was kind of silent? I said, well, what about Friday? I said, come on, John, look, what, what is that day? That's Good Friday. <laughs> what do you think you're doing on Good Friday? So then the whole conversation became came about, where are we going to do the Stations of the Cross and where are we going to go to the commemoration of the Lord's Passion? So it, it quickly shifted away because he realized, yeah, there is no getting around or getting away from this. This is who we are. This isn't just what's imposed upon them, but this is important. This is foundational. And so... There's a way in which we as parents and we for our own lives have to act in that way. That the things that we commemorate, we celebrate, the, the one whom we honor and glorify, we praise and worship, we thank and adore in all of our lives in such a very special way, we make that the focus this week. So please... Um, think about ways to do that in your home. So again, check the bulletin, uh, go online, look at the website, make sure you don't get caught off guard regarding the times of the Mass on Holy Thursday, for instance, or of the Stations of the Cross on Friday, or of the Commemoration of the Passion on Friday, or of the Vigil, if you're going to go to the Vigil, or if not, the Sunday Mass. But this is one of those days where let the decision around which Mass you attend be more about what is going to best foster that sense of worship rather than one that's convenient for the sake of the Easter egg HUD. <laughs> okay, does that make sense? So, okay, so that that's just my my honest recommendation. It's something that uh, maybe we, we haven't done enough as Catholics to really foster that sense of uh, Holy Week is holy, and and we cannot we we can take action earlier in the week so that we don't stumble as we get later in the week. There's a lot at stake, and we don't want to miss out on on the blessings that can come to our lives, the blessings that can reach our lives for our families during this holy week. Okay, all right. I'm coming up against a break. When we come back, I'm going to share with you. I, probably for the final time, um, my stories of my guardian angel, who, you know, when I forget to ask, when I to explicitly give permission for my guardian angel to humble me, I, I don't think he's waiting around. He just seems to go ahead and throw another one in, right in front of me. <laughs> so when we come back, I'll just have a couple of uh, anecdotes of the more recent uh, humbling activities that the uh, my guardian angel has brought me into for, for my good, my good, this Lent. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. Well, since I last was with you, I've had a whole weekend, a whole weekend and, and into yesterday to experience multiple instances of the reality of being humbled. Uh, last time I'll say this out loud, the, there is a custom in Lent. I don't know where it came from. I heard about it a few years ago where you can 
give your guardian angel permission where you pray and ask your guardian angel to get involved in your life, get involved in your Lent. By giving your guardian angel that permission to humble you once a day. And I, I should be grateful, I guess, that I, I kind of put at least a little bit of a limit around it, just once a day. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to think of days where he kind of had to make up for one where I had an easy day maybe and had a couple, but that's not my point. Uh, and and if you remember, when I first stumbled into this, I was just talking about it at the beginning of Lent. I was just talking about, hey, here's something that you could do. And then I felt that little prompting inside of me that said, well, why don't you do that again? And I remember, because I was sharing about on the radio, that I was never going to do this again. And then I started saying, well, the reason why it's such a blessing is that humility makes you useful to God. Humility makes you more available to God. Humility makes you less reliant on yourself. Humility is going to be an antidote to pride. Humility is going to be an antidote to arrogance and condescension. Humility is going to be the uh, the heart, I'm sorry, the, the, um, the, the mother of the virtues. And I'm thinking, well, why wouldn't I want more humility? Why wouldn't I want more humility? And why wouldn't I take an easy, obvious path to grow in humility? And the answer is, it's not fun. It's painful. It's not something that I get to control. It is saying, okay, I trust you, guardian angel, that you are at work and that you'll not lead me too far down a trail where the humbling is really humiliating. And, um, and so, this weekend ended up giving a couple of opportunities for humility. Uh, somewhat painful, but it, it was, uh, again, a couple of forms that I hadn't experienced yet during Lent, not realizing that, man, there are many facets to that diamond of humility, many means of manifesting opportunities for humility. So these, I, I'm just going to share with you a couple, came from my junior high daughters, she's in seventh grade, basketball tournament. So they're part of a Christian league. So the other teams in the junior high league are part of the uh, uh, school network of Christian schools. Now, there's a Catholic, couple of Catholic schools uh, in it, um, one involved sp specifically in this junior high basketball league, and there's a story to be told there uh, as well. And... Uh, and so my team goes into the tournament on Friday. So on Friday morning, we get into the first game. And I should have been aware that <laughs> things would have lots of chance to go badly. I got a whole bunch of girls on my team, 17 girls, 6th to 8th grade. And we're playing against a team um, that has not had a successful season. They've struggled from the standpoint of wins and losses. However, however... There was an award ceremony on Saturday afternoon, and the award ceremony involved um, giving out a trophy for the Christian Character Award. How beautiful is that, by the way? How lovely is that? That at the league award ceremony, they're not simply or first of all awarding a trophy to the champion, to the team that wins it all, but they highlight and emphasize the award that goes to the team that exemplified Christian character. And this team won that. This team won that award. The team that didn't win any games won the Christian character award. And, and it's, not, it's not some kind of like uh, 
Miss Congeniality Prize. It's not some kind of, oh, you guys lost, but you lost graciously. No, it has so much to do with the atmosphere, the spirit, the attitude of the girls as they played and how they treated uh, the team they were playing against, all of that. And so so we were playing them uh, in our first game, and, and we were the team that was the top-ranked team. We hadn't lost a game. We, have, we had some pretty talented girls. And, and so um, we got out to a, a bit of a lead, and, and then I started to substitute my, um, my, some of my players in, right? just giving all the girls a chance to play, and there's 17 of them. Now, normally I've got three assistant coaches, but they all are in high school and they were all at school because it was a school day. So I was there on my own trying to manage the 17 girls. So at five at a time, I'm working with them behind the bench. And all of a sudden, during the third quarter, I got yelled at by the ref. (laughs) The ref yelled at me. He called me out and he said, what are you doing? Why do you have your girls pressing? You guys are winning by so much. This is terrible pull off the press take out your starters and i'm i'm trying to get these other five girls ready i'm not even watching the game and i'm like what what's going on what's happening here and uh shortly before that one of my players had uh jammed her finger and so she's there crying on the sideline sitting in a chair too i'm trying to attend to her and i have no assistance to help me and he's yelling at me now the reason why this was humbling the reason why this was humbling was that I had worked really hard during the year in every game to play in a way that was not ever going to be embarrassing or um, like, uh, like demolishing of the spirit of the team we were playing against. So, for instance, when we had played this team during the regular season, I sat out my best player. I didn't even play her until at the very end of the fourth quarter, we needed to throw her in for a couple of minutes. But I I made conscious, intentional efforts to play every game in a way that was going to be uplifting, encouraging, and and a real, like, uh, a real wonderful, like, engaging game that the parents would get in. And, and, you know, when you have, like, a junior high teams like this, you're often going to have a discrepancy of talent, and one of the team is just going to just run way out ahead, and they'll be up by 20 points or 30 points quite quickly in the game. And then it's just, like, a terrible game to watch at that point, just terrible, and everybody feels horrible. So I, I chose not to coach like that, and so to have this ref call me out in the first game of the of the tournament as if somehow I was intentionally trying to make the other team feel bad and 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 just kind of crush them with some kind of full court man to man press uh with my starters was really discouraging to me it was it was frankly it was humbling it was embarrassing to be called out by the ref i mean i've never seen refs call out a coach before but the the ref like barked at me <laughs> when I was behind the bench talking to the other girls. And the funny thing was, is that I did have two starters on the floor, but I had said to the two starters, it's your job not to score. It's your job to help these other three girls who barely know how to play to be able to actually have a semblance of a running an offense and a defense. Um, and there wasn't any intention to try to, like uh, destroy the the other team from being able to bring the ball up by some kind of full court press. I just had said to the girls, play man to man, and they were playing full court. So it was, uh, it was so humbling. 
It was just so humbling to, to, to be the, like the one guy who like deserved it the least in my humble opinion, to be the guy that gets called out for the very thing that I had made every effort not to do over the course of the season. So that was really humbling to me, really very humbling. Okay. So that was the first thing that happened. Um, and then uh, in the, uh, in the, after the third game of Friday, the third game on Friday, um, again, we were, this would be the game that would then be the quarterfinals, would be leading to the semifinals. And once again, we had, we, we had kind of a harder battle against the team we were playing. And we eventually pulled away. And so I, as quickly as I could, brought in all my other players to be able to give them some time on the floor against a really good team that, um, you know, they were trying to battle to get into the quarterfinals and put the girls in and, and they're playing. And, and lo and behold, it comes back to me after the game, after the game, that there was a coach from our arch rival who was watching the game. And he said something critical about my coaching, specifically that he couldn't believe that I would coach in the way that I was coaching because I had my girls um, doing a full court, man-to-man, with only a minute left in the game uh, against an opponent that was clearly going to lose the game. And it for me, the irony of it all, the great irony was that when I heard that, I got such... I don't know. I had this like surge of like, uh, I don't know, the anger, pride, um, like, wait a minute, like a revolt inside of me because the fellow, the coach who was making that claim against me, literally, this is how that guy coaches from the very beginning of the game. He coaches in a way that says, I'm going to just bring it on, crush my opponents, and then barely ever take my foot off the gas. And here he is making, like pointing this out about me in the last minute when it wasn't even my intention. (laughs) I once again was by myself trying to manage 17 kids and move them around. And then that report dribbled back to me. And I was like, wow, this is so humbling to me. So humbling to have like that kind of report come back to me and and to be able to just say, you know what? I'm not going to let that determine my personal position. I'm not going to let it determine my, how I stand before the Lord. I'm going to allow my reputation. I'm going to allow my reputation with that ref and with that other coach to just be what it is. And I have to surrender, just have to surrender that is part of humility, the willingness to simply just surrender, to let it go. And, and just you just can't worry about that. You turn to the Lord, acknowledge it, and just move on. So that's not an easy thing to do, not for me, not an easy thing for me, my personality. I know some of you are listening and thinking, man, you got thin skin, or why are you so defensive? And, it, you know, it Whatever the case, it is, uh, it's a matter of saying, how does the Lord find the right tool to bring about a spiritual good 
that he wants for our lives through the events of our daily lives, through the events of our day. He has at his disposal wonderful opportunities for us to be humbled, to humbly accept correction, to humbly uh, not respond when um, we feel like we're justified in doing so, or to say, hey, oh yeah, what about you? Which is the like most natural and easy thing to do. So I do have a couple of other stories, but they're along the same vein. They're along the same, they, 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 for whatever reason, the Lord seems to have been working with me in relational settings, relational settings where uh, there seemed to have been some kind of like direct, like coming at me or at my family or at, in this instance, my team or how I was coaching in a way that just, um, I had a choice and the choice was become defensive, react, or just be humble enough to say, I surrender it. Lord, I give it to you. Lord, I let it go. It is what it is. So that's what I did. There you go. Okay, so that's that's my little update on how my Lent is going, specifically around that whole task of um, humbling myself. I, I guess my last act of humbling myself is that um, experiencing the fall, the, the concussion that I did, did throw me off in terms of my ability to focus and have the energy I needed to do the fasting. The fasting part of this Lent has been my um, my biggest source of personal failure, like personal failure to live up to what I had sensed a call to do. And I don't think I was wrong. I don't think I was wrong in my discernment. Maybe I was. Maybe I was trying to do too much. I don't, maybe I was. Maybe I was just trying to do too much in terms of the, on the fasting side of things. I do know that um, the almsgiving side has been the biggest one. I've shared that with you before. Just a lot of pull outside of myself to be at the service of others. And um, the the prayer part um, is sort of in the in-between, right? So I, I feel I feel good about certain aspects of the, the prayer commitments I made and kept, but also saw the impact of the, the fall that I when I hit my head. Um, I just have not recovered uh, in, in the complete way yet where I can um, wake up uh, early um, or um, I just need more rest. My, my brain just needs more rest. So I just have been unable to be as attentive to my prayer commitment either. So um, that's, that, I guess, there's, there's sort of my humbling uh, kind of summary of, of Lent. Do you do that? Do you stop and take stock of how your Lent has been? Because there, there's a journey, again, that the Lord brought you on in Lent. The Lord brought you. He He is, and, and he's not done yet, but he has been walking with you this Lent. Have you done any sort of stopping and reflecting, journaling, and, and thinking about how your Lent has been regarding the prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, regarding the activity to uproot uh, those things that are part of our lives that hold us back from glorifying God, to, to uproot those things that are wanting to pull us back into slavery in Egypt, and those other things to do to prepare us to enter more fruitfully into the work of joining Christ in ministry in that promised land of good things. That's what Lent is about. How have we been doing? Back in a minute. 
Welcome back to Sound Insight. So take stock. Use that examination of conscience, right? Examination of conscience. Take some time, maybe get some paper, get a journal, something to to jot down some notes that you're just able to say, this is what I've done well. This is where I sensed God at work in me today. This is what I did to respond to it. And and I'm grateful to the Lord for the response. And then here's what I didn't do when I felt prompted to do something. And and here's where I was tempted to do something uh, that was dark and evil. And I repent when it, when I gave in, or I thank God for the grace of saying no to it. Right? That, that, that's a really quick way of describing an examination of conscience. And then there's the resolution to say, Lord, I'll follow. I'll follow better. Give me the grace, Lord, to say yes more completely. So, Simple, easy things that you can use in your examination of conscience. What did you commit to first thing in the morning? Did you commit to a time of prayer in the morning? I hope you did. I hope you said, I'm going to take advantage of that first moment of my day, and I'm going to set it apart for the Lord. I'm going to allow the Lord to draw me out into that desert first thing in the morning. And so I do that as my typical practice, but I was definitely going to continue that and increase that uh, in the morning. How did that go? Well, I can, I can see one of the easy temptations that comes up is when I would get up in the morning, uh, if I was particularly tired, it was hard to sit in quiet prayer and do the office of readings. It was easier to have my smartphone with me and watch a video, even an inspiring video or a holy uh, Lenten talk or something like that, which makes it sound pretty holy that it was probably 50% of the time it wasn't that at all. I was just goofy stuff that was unimportant, whether it was some news item or some work item or checking my email or some other real estate thing. And it's like, really, Tom? And, and that would be the funny thing is that my conscience would would be alert in that moment. Really, Tom, this is why you got up early? You got up early to do this? I thought you got up early to set apart your time for the Lord. So that's an examination of conscience is just stopping and asking yourself, how did, how did you start your day? And then what about how did you end your day? Did you take some time at the end to pray with your family? Did you take some time at the end to uh, to have a conversation with the Lord? Did you do any spiritual reading? Did you read your scripture? Did you read the, 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 the reading from the Mass of the day? Hey, wait a minute. Did you get to Mass today? Did you make any effort to get to Mass today? Did you stop and think, hmm, if I was able to leave, work, uh, leave for work earlier, I could get to that Mass at that church? Or before I went home or before dinner, or could we shift our dinner time, we could make that mass that is right around dinner time. Are we willing to make the sacrifice? Those are the kind of things that you could be prompted to do. And were you prompted? Did you do them? What happened as a result? And it's amazing how we begin to recognize the blessings that come from honoring the Lord's prompting in our lives. We think that we have to battle so hard sometimes to get things to happen the way we want when we fail to realize 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 15, the battle is not yours but God's. The battle is not yours but God's. Let God battle for you and you'll discover as you battle to give God first priority in your life, as you battle to give God time in prayer, as you battle to develop and nurture your relationship with the Lord, guess what happens? God will fight your battles. God fights your battles. You'll see God bring victory where you have not seen breakthrough. So that that's what I mean when I'm talking about take some time this Lent and do some examining of conscience regarding 
your own spiritual practices, the things that you were doing to pray, fast, and give alms. Okay, let's dive into the Summa Theologica. I promise this to you. It was the, It's the fourth article from question 54 in part three of the Summa Theologica. Don't worry about it. It's the question whether Christ's body ought to have risen with its scars. Whether Christ's body ought to have risen with its scars scars. What a fascinating question. I had read this section of the Summa before. I probably had talked about it on Sound Insight, I don't know, maybe eight or ten years ago, but I recently stumbled into a homily that went into or built off of these five reasons that St. Thomas Aquinas mentions in the Summa. And I thought, ooh, this is good stuff for Lent. So let's talk about that, whether it was fitting that Jesus rising from the dead, Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, should have the marks of his crucifixion on his risen body, right? As you know, what, there were five wounds that remained on Jesus' resurrected, glorified body. The wounds in the hands, in the feet, and in the side. The hands, the feet, and the side. Right, you remember, and Aquinas begins with this in John 20, 27. The Lord says to St. Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Bring your hand here and put it in my side. And don't be an unbeliever, but believe. And Aquinas says this. He says, it was fitting for Christ's soul at his resurrection to resume the body with its scars and he says, for five reasons. In the first place, for Christ's own glory. Uh, Venerable Bede says that Jesus kept his scars not from an inability to heal them, but to wear them as an everlasting trophy of his victory. The, the, the wounds in his hands are an everlasting trophy of his victory. St. Augustine says, perhaps in the kingdom, we shall see on the bodies of the martyrs the traces of the wounds which they bore for Christ's name. Because it will not be a deformity, but a dignity in them. And a certain kind of beauty will shine in them, in the body, though not of the body. And Aquinas continues on, and he says a little bit later, the scars that remained in Christ's body belong neither to corruption nor defect, but to the greater increase of glory, inasmuch as they are the trophies of his power. And a special beauty will appear in the places scarred by the wounds. That is so powerful. And you have to stop and just remember this that when Jesus suffered his, through his passion, remember the passion, the agony in the garden, and then he enters into the beatings that he had in front of the Caiaphas, in, in, the, in front of the Sanhedrin, beaten, spat upon, and then he underwent the scourging, the crowning with thorns, and the carrying of the cross. And all along, experiencing various beatings, bruises, hits, Again, struck by the uh, flagellum uh, when he was um, uh, when he experienced the scourging, 
you can see from the uh, from the shroud of Turin that the wounds that Jesus endured during his passion, through the various aspects of the passion that I just described, covered him head to toe, head to toe. You see signs of his passion, that he was marred beyond recognition. It says in Isaiah, and uh, they wouldn't even account him a man because of the, the 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 intensity, the extension, the extensiveness of these beatings. And yet, when he rose from the dead, his body was healed. His his glorified body was healed of all of those wounds, of all of those pains, of all of those bruises all of those dislocations, with the exception of these five wounds, the wounds especially associated with his time on the cross, his hands, his feet, and his side pierced by the lance while on the cross. It's by Christ's cross, by the culmination of what appeared to be his defeat, that God turns into his greatest victory, and in a very special way, a trophy of his victory, a, uh, a, a particular display of heavenly beauty, a special beauty that appears in those places scarred by the wounds. Why is that important for us to hear? You can probably figure it out. Each of us, in some manner or form in our lives, suffer. Each of us in our lives, in some manner, undergo a type of passion. We all are invited to have those moments of suffering, tribulation, pain, bruising, wounding, difficulties that lead us to interior suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering, other types of mental anguish, as well as physical sufferings, all of these things, we, we uh, uh, have the opportunity to bring to Christ in his passion. And what do we discover? We discover that all that we bring to Christ in his passion will be healed or will be transformed by the power of God and Christ's victory into a trophy, into a trophy, a sign of victory and a particular, distinct, special form of beauty. That's what God can do. That's what the Lord does do. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. I'm in this last segment of the program going to continue reflecting on the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas in the third part of the Summa, question 55, uh, 54, article number four, talking about the uh, whether uh, Christ's body ought to uh, have risen with its scars. And so just covered that first one. And, and just remember now, these things are connected to our lives, that Christ rose from the dead with these scars, but the scars become a sign of beauty, though the great majority of what Christ underwent was healed completely, completely gone. Can you trust that in your life, you'll experience one of two outcomes for all the suffering that you're enduring? The Lord will heal it, and you, and anything that remains, the Lord will use, will use in a very special way to display something of a beauty that otherwise would not be present in your life 
and will be a trophy of victory. A trophy of victory. So this past weekend at the basketball tournament, we won. We won the trophy. It was a victory. But maybe, you know what, the most important victory that happened for me over that weekend during those games was the, was the humility, the humbling actions, the humbling interactions that occurred. In humbling me, the Lord is cleansing me. The Lord wants me to come through those woundings that happened to me precisely to cleanse me and heal me of the darkness of pride. And so I just share that with you to think that no matter what you're suffering, Christ will heal you or Christ will turn it into a trophy, into a victory because he's that powerful. He has that kind of divine power to bring to bear in your circumstance. Okay, next. The second reason Aquinas says that Christ ought to have risen with his scars is to confirm the hearts of the disciples as to the faith in his resurrection. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And how do we know that the risen Lord isn't just a ghost? How do we know it's he? How did they recognize him? Well, in part, you could say, and this is, uh, again, uh, St. Thomas in, in the Gospel of John, look at my hands, look at my side, and don't be an unbeliever, but believe. And so that is a sign for the first generation, for the apostles, that the one who died is the one who was raised from the dead. The one who underwent the passion and was crucified on the cross is the one that rose victorious over death. And Aquinas talks about the, um, the he says this, he says that uh, Thomas, however, not only saw but handled the wounds because as Pope Leo the Great, St. Pope Leo the Great says, it sufficed for Thomas's personal faith for him to have seen what he saw. But it was on our behalf that he touched what he beheld. Isn't that beautiful? What a powerful way of saying it. That it was sufficient, it was sufficed for St. Thomas's personal faith for him to have seen what he saw, namely Jesus and the wounds. But it was on our behalf that he touched what he beheld. So that just confirms in a different way, we who weren't there, the fact that Thomas actually touched Jesus, that he wasn't just imagining it, it wasn't some kind of mass hallucination or just a spiritual thing. No, there was a physical quality to the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus. Third, St. Thomas Aquinas says that when Jesus pleads for us with the Father, he may always show the manner of, of death he endured for us. Wow. Wow. When Jesus pleads for us with the Father, when he shows up, he opens his hands, says, look what I underwent. It's, it's, a, it's, um, it's a beautiful like, metaphor. Right? It's a beautiful like, uh, way of, of describing the, this this reality of Jesus as our great high priest, the intercessor, the one who goes before the Father on our behalf. He is our one mediator with the Father. But remember now, Jesus draws us into his great act of intercession. It's through and with and in his act of intercession with the Father, but we're the body of Christ, and so we share in the action of the head. And so guess what? We too have the opportunity to bring before the Lord all that we've sacrificed, all that we've suffered, 
all that we've endured in our own following of Jesus in our own life of faith to use that to plead through, with, and in Jesus's suffering to the Father. So it's part of the beautiful, powerful, profound, mysterious teaching that says the most fruitful way that we help bring about, we share in the work of redemption that Christ has won, that we are drawn into that work. It isn't so much the deeds that we do. It isn't so much the words that we say. It's the suffering that we undergo, that we share in the great work of redemption by being willing to be drawn into suffering, by being willing to suffer through, with, and in Christ's suffering. That is, has an intercessory power, It has a power to intercede, to bring spiritual blessings and benefits to those you love. So when you suffer, I suffer a bad toothache right now. I'm offering up the pain and suffering for those that I love, for specific intentions. Why let it go to waste? Why let it go to waste? Offer it up. Fourth, that Jesus may convince those redeemed in his blood how mercifully they've been helped. And he exposes before them the traces of the same death. Jesus convinces those redeemed in his blood how mercifully they've been helped as he exposes before them the traces of that same death. Meaning, you look and you see the wounds of Christ, what he endured. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't take for granted. Don't take so lightly that forgiveness is available to you when you go to confession, that the mercy is available to you when you cry out with deep contrition for forgiveness of sins. Lord, I'm so sorry. Don't take so lightly what it cost Jesus to redeem us, to open the path for us to heaven and communion with God again. Don't take it for granted. The wounds of Christ remind us of that. And lastly, Aquinas says, that on the judgment day, he may upbraid them, Jesus may upbraid them with their just condemnation. Hence, as Augustine says, Christ knew why he kept the scars in his body. For as he showed them to Thomas, who would not believe except he handled and saw them, so will he show his wounds to his enemies, so that he who is the truth may convict them, saying, Behold the man whom you crucified. See the wounds you inflicted. Recognize the side you pierced. Since it was opened by you and for you, yet you would not enter. Whoa. So here we see the powerful insight that carries down throughout Uh, church history, from the scriptures all the way through church history, great saints, is that what are we the authors and ministers of in our lives? You know, we like to be the author. We want to, you know, have a message that, that is associated with us in our lives. What are we authoring in our lives? Well, what the church says in her magisterium and in the lives of the saints, this is in the catechism, that we are the authors and ministers of all that Christ suffered. We are the authors and ministers of all that Christ endured in his passion through our sins. And so looking at the wounds of the risen Christ, he convicts us that, make it even more personal, he convicts me. I did that to 
him. No, no, wait a minute. Even more personally. Jesus, I did that to you. That's why the wounds are there and the, and the risen glorified Christ. And the last sentence quoted from Augustine is the kicker. But the wounds I've laid bare and I've opened them to you so that you might enter and find forgiveness. Not just be convicted of your sin, but also be convicted of my desire to show you mercy. Be convicted of the truth that I've offered you a path to forgiveness, a fresh start, and a new beginning. And yet, you refused to enter in, and so you face judgment. My brothers and sisters, let's contemplate the wounds of Christ the wounds that he endures in his passion, in his death on the cross, but the wounds that he chose to have remain on his risen body. And in this holy week, in this holy week, let's make a decision to offer to the Lord all that we're suffering in union with him, that we might be healed, that we might be cleansed, and that these wounds might be turned into trophies and be brought into a place of divine beauty. Let's come before the Lord and, and repent of the ways that we take him for granted and what he underwent for us. Let's cry out for mercy for the ways that we did that to him. And let's beg him for the grace to always come back to him and hide in those wounds and never run away and face judgment at the end of our lives. There's a lot at stake in this Holy Week. Let's not miss it. Thanks so much for walking with me today on Sound Insight. God bless your day. And join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.